If I were so tempted, there is one movie that I could probably pull dozens of clips from, a rather modern movie, um, Monsters, Inc., uh, that only those of you with children would know anything about, probably. Uh, but this particular passage, verse 7, and, and several others, quite, quite a few others that I'll be referring to in Paul's letters to Timothy and to Titus, uh, remind me of a scene in Monsters, Inc. Now, Monsters, Inc., very briefly, is about a town of monsters uh, who are themselves not at all scary. But they have a company, it's kind of like a Duke Energy in this town, it's called Monsters, Inc., and they raise energy, they capture energy through the, through the screams of terror of human children. And so Monsters, Inc. has thousands of these of doors that these scare monsters go through into the closets of little boys and girls in the human world, and they scare them. And when the kids scream, they, they gather in these canisters energy, and they bring it back, and that's what powers the city, the metropolis, which Monsters, Inc. is responsible. Now, the chief scarer is uh, named Sully, and uh, he, he's the one who wins all the awards in scaring the children, but again, he's, he's absolutely a teddy bear and not the least bit scary in real life. And this passage right here, and, that, and how I'm going to, to deal with verse 7 uh, and, and what it does to the church reminds me not of Sully so much as two other kind of dorky monsters who are cheering Sully on as he's going onto the scare floor to scare children and to raise all this energy. By the way, they find out in the course of the movie that laughter generates more energy than screams. So that's kind of, I just gave away the punchline. Sorry about that. Spoiler alert, <laughs> too late. <laughs> um, anyhow, one of them is cheering on Sully and, you know, tell him, go get him, you can do it. And, and the other one is hitting his friend, saying, shut up, you're making him lose his focus. And that's what this is about. Focus. And I've wondered, uh, as I kind of put those two very disparate thoughts together, Monsters, Inc. and 1 Timothy chapter 4, whether there, there could be within the church, within the congregation of church, people like that friend. You know, when, when someone else is, is wanting the, the minister to do this or to do that, they say, shut up, you're making him lose his focus. Because that's what Paul's basically saying to Timothy here and to Titus Elsewhere, don't lose your focus. Don't be distracted. And don't allow your focus to be distracted. And, and as I said last week, you know, this is a, a pastoral epistle. And so it, it is really written to those of us upon whom God has given the burden of preaching his word. Nonetheless, it, it is for the congregation of God because we are all one flock. And it is up to the congregation, the church, to not only determine who among them has been gifted to teach God's word and is to be placed as overseers among them, but also to assist. And there are a number of scriptures in the New Testament that talk about the responsibilities of the congregation, not only to honor those who have charge over you, but also to make their work lighter as light as it can be. And I think one way is to avoid distractions because sadly, as we read through the epistles, uh, we read through the pastorals, and even at the very earliest time of the church, we find that those distractions actually come from within the church. 
To think of one of the earliest narratives we have of the church in Acts chapter 6, when there was a complaint between the, the Jewish, the Hebrew, and the Hellenistic widows about the serving of the benevolence fund, and they took it to the uh, apostles, and the apostles responded, Shut up! You're making me lose my focus! No, I didn't really say that, but they did say it is not desirable that we should neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Well, isn't that basically the same thing? And maybe it would have been better, and, and you really, you think about it, it wasn't, it wasn't really that all hard to figure out. I don't know that they needed the wisdom of the apostles to figure out how to deal with the problem. And I think it was a potential distraction that somebody within the congregation could have said, you, you don't need to take that to the apostles. Their, their focus is the Word of God. And really, the analogy between this and Monsters, Inc., is a lot closer than you realize. Because just as the city, and I can't remember the name of it, but the city derived its energy, so also the church derives its energy from the Word of God and from the ministry of the Word. It's almost like, those of you who've seen it, you know that they collected energy in those yellow canisters and there was a side you know, that showed when they were full. That when the Word of God is preached in truth and in the power of the Holy Spirit, whoop, whoop, you know, you fill a whole bank of them. The church is energized. Distractions, on the other hand, even though they seem very valid and good, for example, there should not have been a prejudice, a discrimination between the Hellenistic and the Hebrew widows in the dispensing of benevolence funds. There shouldn't have been. And fixing that was a noble and right thing. So many distractions can, on the face of it, seem very valid and good. And sometimes they seem to energize the community. And this is really big in the modern Western church. We have all these different programs. We have 40 days of programs. And they energize the community. But in fact, they're, they're not energizing the community. They're short-circuiting it. So that whatever energy has been stored up is being depleted. And before long, you have to have another rush. Or you run out of energy. You de-energize the church when the ministry of the Word is not the focus. I remember somebody asking me, or actually not asking because this particular person never asked anything, but in the form of the question, telling me, so this is a teaching church, huh? Well, yes. What, what other kind of church is there? We've heard this morning about Ben Van's situation, his experience, which merely echoes the experience of, sadly, thousands of believers. And that is they go from church to church and church to church. And they, they are gracious, usually, in calling it milk. Because it's often not even enough consistency. I mean, it's definitely fat-free. Okay, it is the skimmest milk that you could possibly imbibe. That's the state of the church. But I'm saying, according to what Paul is writing here, I believe that that is because we have allowed distractions to take our focus off of what truly energizes the body of Christ, the people of God, and that is His Word, which is likened to bread and to manna. It is our nourishment. And so distractions do not energize. They de-energize, and the ministers of God's Word should be as free of distractions as possible. And the members of the congregation 
do themselves the best possible good by policing distractions away from those who minister to them the Word of God. Not by bringing everything to them, as if without them nothing can be done. Because those, all those items, all those things that need to be done, God has gifted the body to take care of. We've, we've talked about the spiritual gifts, the charismata. It would be better for people within the congregation when you realize that something needs to be done. And one person says, well, let's go ask the elders. Hit that person and say, hey, shut up. You're making him lose his focus. He, he doesn't need to be thinking about that. He needs to be in the word and bringing the word and feeding the congregation. And again, to continue the analogy, energizing the people of God through God's word. Now, a caveat is, is in order here. A quick word of clarification, because I'm not advocating monastic solitude. I think it'll become clearer when I go through the various distractions that Paul highlights in his pastoral letters, that I'm, I'm not talking about uh, a minister of God's word who is isolated in his study. I remember reading in the biography of Jonathan Edwards and then also I had a summer course in seminary, the theology of Jonathan Edwards, that, that he had the habit of spending an average of 13 hours a day in his study. And we know he didn't have a computer, so he wasn't playing video games. He was studying for 13 hours a day. Now, if you read the biography of Jonathan Edwards, you, you realize that while he was an incredible intellect, a sincere believer, and contributed powerfully to the overall church, I personally conclude that he was completely disconnected from his congregation. And when a significant issue did come up, a significant ecclesiastical issue concerning the baptism and communion of the congregants, he couldn't carry a majority and he lost his position. It was a Congregationalist church. I think largely it's because he was remote and unapproachable. If you've read any of his sermons, I, I, I find it hard to believe that they were even tolerable then. They're great reading because you can go back and read them and read that sentence again and read it backwards and see if it makes any more sense that way. They're intricate, they're, they're deep, and he, and he builds a framework, a theological framework that is impenetrable and probably unpenetrating too. But the important thing is, I don't think he had a connection. I don't think he had a life. Paul, on the other hand, worked with his own hands and tent making whenever he had to. And whenever he could, he devoted himself to the ministry of the word. But he was with them, as he says to the elders of Ephesus, day by day with tears. I was with you in your homes, in your places of business. It is widely believed and I think perfectly reasonable that that's where he met Priscilla and Aquila, who were tent makers. They had a similar craft and probably belonged to the same guild. Isolation is itself a distraction. So is poverty and desperation. Which is why Paul says later in this letter that the elder who dedicates himself to preaching and teaching is worthy of double honor. Because he says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. 
and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And, and so it is up to the congregation to make sure in as much as possible that the ministers of the word are able financially to be able to devote their time as much as possible to the ministry of the word. Now I say as possible, as possible, as possible, because it has been true to the history of the church as it is today that many congregations are not capable of fully supporting. And again, that's where Paul would say, no, no problems. I can make tents. I can sell tents. And, and we can do things. I can make croconole boards. I can renovate houses. And we do things that are not distractions because they actually remove a distraction. And that is needing to pay our bills. So I'm not advocating monastic solitude for the ministers because I think that in itself would be a distraction. It would allow the man, who is usually the type of personality somewhat introverted, and, and surprisingly, Myers-Briggs test, I am an introvert. You wouldn't think that necessarily, but that's what I you know, program out to be. We like to read. We like to take notes and underline our passages. and We like to do that. And so 13 hours in the study would drive me crazy, personally, because I also have ADHD, but, uh, or BAD, or whatever it was when I was growing up. But uh, I couldn't do that. But that's not, that's not right for the church. The distractions and Paul's concern for Timothy and Titus is that whatever focus they may bring to the ministry of the Word, not be depleted by foolish and unprofitable concerns. Things that distract us from the ministry of the Word. Listen to the Apostles' description of distractions here in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 7 of the passage I just read. Worldly fables fit only for old women. I think we call those old wives' tales now. In chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, he says, Opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Verses 14 through 16, wrangling about words. Literally, uh, the, 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 the phrase is word battles. And I missed one in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Oh no, I mentioned that one. Wrongly wrangling about words, worldly and empty chatter. That word chatter makes me, it reminds me of like radio static. You know, that crackling noise. That means you can't, if you're, if you're on a cell phone congregation or conversation with someone and it's, it's crackling, you know, they're going through a tunnel or whatever it is, you can't really pay attention to what they're saying. It's a distraction or empty chatter. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, foolish and ignorant speculation. That's, that's a big one. And see, not, not all of these are timeless concerns. I have to say that in my years of being an elder at Fellowship Bible Church, I have not yet been distracted by Jewish myths. I haven't had any come my way. But foolish and ignorant speculation, yeah, there's a lot of that. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, people who only want to have their ears tickled. Yeah, that was a major concern that Paul knew would come into the churches. People who just want to hear what they want to hear, what makes them feel good about themselves. Now certainly we don't have that trouble in the modern church, do we? Titus chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. This is where we read about Jewish myths and the commandments of men. And chapter 3 of Titus, verse 9. 
foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. In that last passage, Paul labels such distractions with a couple of words that apply to all of what he has said in these three pastoral letters. He calls them unprofitable and worthless. But what I want to point out is that the attraction of these distractions is that they seem to be part of the central message, like genealogies. There, there was a big thing, and there has been over the course of the church chronically about genealogies. Of course, in, 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 in the Jewish world, it was very important to know which tribe you were of. Genealogies were very, very important. If genealogies were not important, then Ancestry.com would not make any money. And they do. They make quite a bit. Because we, we have something in our wiring that wants us to look into our genealogies in, in order to... I don't know what. Uh, the Mormon Church actually owns Ancestry.com. And I don't know what you know about the Mormon Church, but they actually believe in, in bringing salvation to ancestors. So while you're online on Ancestry.com, they are saving your ancestors. They're building a database for themselves. So keep that in mind, that if you do use that, that program, um, you're actually aiding and abetting the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. But those things are, are still uh, with us today, and, and the danger of distractions is the appearance of them being good for the ministry of the gospel and the church in the modern culture. That, that's the thing. It, it's not... This is a silly one. Um, and, and I use it, and I do not mean to be in any way disrespectful for anybody, but years ago we did have somebody who felt like it was the elder's duty, because they're always the last to leave the church, to make sure all the toilets were flushed. Well, that's a distraction. It's a silly one, but that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what Paul was talking about. Of course, he didn't have indoor plumbing, but he's not talking about those types of things because there's no real harm in them. He's talking about things that have the appearance. Word battles, for example. These would have been words in Scripture, a Hebrew word or an Aramaic word or a Greek word. What does it really mean? And what does it mean over here? We get a lot of those in the church. But these are distractions from the whole counsel of God. They're distractions from the salvific message of faith in Jesus Christ and the grace of God. Some of these things, as I said, don't really apply to us today. But there are things that we might add to the list. Not to add to Scripture, but simply to say, in the spirit of what Paul is cautioning both the pastors and the congregation, these are things that are distractions. Worldly and empty chatter. Those are distractions. Now, I'm going to add into that something that has gotten us into trouble, not really trouble, but disagreement with others over the years and recently. And that is participation in social and political issues. There, there is a, a, a strong and valid concern among believers that the church should have an impact within society and that it should impact the culture in which it lives. That is all true. 
But then we begin to think that in order to do that, in order to impact, we must participate in that process. If we live in a democracy, then the church, and I'm not talking about individual believers, I'm talking about the, the congregation, the assembled people of God, should actively participate, support, oppose, campaign for particular political issues. Because that's the way that we will turn around our society for God. Bunk. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that will turn around any society or not. It is the Spirit of God in that gospel who, who will either bring many to salvation, thus turning around that society, or not. But it will not be any social or political participation in the church which has never worked. And I would say it de-energizes that church and it makes it nothing more than a worldly vehicle of worldly wisdom. No longer a church at all. Conspiracy theories. These abound so much within modern Western Christianity that we have become a laughing stock in the world. We see a conspiracy behind everything. And what we manifest with conspiracy theories is not faith in the power and grace of God, but rather fear that the world that we know and love will end. Well, history teaches us that at all times the world that we know and love will end. And there is a conspiracy of sorts. It is the prince of the power of the air, the power of spiritual darkness, the power of deception that works within all fallen humanity. Not just the Illuminati, not just the Masons, but in your neighbors, in your co-workers, in all that walk in darkness. Because Paul tells us that, that before we came to Christ, before God rescued us, we were led by idols. We were led by demons. That's the conspiracy. But that conspiracy has already been broken in the power of Jesus Christ's eternal life, the God-man who defeated Satan and the grave. And so the church must not, not just need not, but it must not get wrapped up in conspiracy theories. It is a distraction, and it de-energizes the church. Perhaps a little closer to home within Reformed churches, esoteric theological controversies. I remember a, a conversation, several conversations within um, the group, the class and seminary about whether or not we should be supralapsarian or infralapsarian. Now I'm sure that's something that the average believer deals with deeply every day of their lives, whether they should be supralapsarian or infralapsarian. There's a huge debate going on about what exactly Paul meant with the word justification. I don't know that we can ever say what exactly Paul meant because Paul also often meant many things. And yet there is, there is these esoteric theological controversies that, that lead to, to theological conferences where they all get together in their own little camps and praise one another for their correctness, doing no possible good, no good at all to the congregation of God's people. This is not meat. These are the bones on which the congregation chokes. And Reformed theology and Reformed churches are among the most guilty 
of allowing their ministers and their ministers themselves being distracted, willingly distracted. Because there's a certain pride that, are, that comes when you're asked to speak at a seminar or a conference or, or to write a book or an article about a particular theological issue. But the only thing that a shepherd should think about is what is good for the sheep. I don't know that there was ever a, 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 a shepherd conference where all the shepherds got together and talked about how best to use the crook or the staff or to fight a lion or a bear. That wasn't their calling. God said, or Paul said, that what is required of a steward, to shift the metaphor, is that he be found faithful. Not that he attend a whole bunch of conferences or be a lead speaker, but that he be found faithful. And while there's a certain pride that I know congregations of believers have when their minister is a big name, and, and I do believe that these men in, in other ways have done the church, like Jonathan Edwards, a great deal of good. It is not something that any or all pastors should ever aspire to. I do not believe that that will earn them the praise of the chief shepherd. And say, Lord, Lord, I spoke at conferences in your name. And he will say, and your flock suffered for it. I wrote books and I argued about the meaning of this word for you. And I was right. And your flock suffered for it. Your flock starved for it. And in fact, you abandoned your flock. Sundays after Sundays, you were gone. Until eventually you arrived at a big enough church to support your ego with empty, starving flocks in your wake. That is what describes modern evangelicalism. These are distractions. This is what Paul is saying. Do not lose your focus. Your focus is on the sound doctrine that I have given you. So elsewhere in 2 Timothy, he says, you know, you find faithful men that you may pass this doctrine to who you know will then pass it along to the next generation. It is up to you, Timothy. It is up to you, Titus. It is up to you, Mark, David, Chuck. It is up to you, pastor, to make sure this sound doctrine survives generation to generation. And there are so many forces against it that you must not lose your focus. The power of the church, the energy of the church, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The light of the church to the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not political activism. It is not social issues. It is not talking about conspiracies, but rather faithfully studying, teaching, feeding, and eating God's manna, God's word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that by the grace of your Spirit, you would allow us to keep our focus. That in spite of the pressures that are brought upon us in our culture, in our church culture, to be distracted in so many ways, that as a congregation, and as ministers of your word, we would know our focus. And that focus is the exalted glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. 
We pray, Father, that you might cause your church in, in this land to regain its focus. And those churches who have never had it to attain focus. And to know what it is that energizes. And to recognize those things that de-energize. We do pray, Father, that the church might have an impact in this world, in our culture. We do pray that it might have a, be a force of good, of illumination, of truth. But we acknowledge that the only way the church can do that is by maintaining her focus, fixing her eyes upon Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of her faith, her Lord, the one who has gone before into your presence, that we might be his witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth, but also, Father, to our own community. Father, we do ask that you would do these things for your glory, for the exaltation of the name and person of Jesus Christ, and for the glory of his church, his bride. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand for the benediction this evening from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 16. Now to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen.